Isaiah chapter 53, and our text this morning is found in verses 4 through 6. So I invite you to read along there in your seats as I read here from the Word of God. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thus says the word of God. Would you join with me in prayer? God, these holy words must be at the center of our, our thoughts this morning. We pray that we might look upon Christ as he should be seen. For we know that there are many variations of who Christ is among men's opinions. And there are many churches and religions that have opinions about who Jesus is. But God, we want to put ourselves humbly right before you this morning. And we just want you to explain to us who Jesus is and what he has done. For we don't want any of our opinions and we don't want anybody else's to affect our beliefs. You must speak for yourself. So we come to your word and we trust in it. And we're going to rely upon it. And we pray that you might open the ears of our hearts this morning. That we might look and behold this blessed son of yours, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at three truths in this passage. And the first one is the realm of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. All throughout this passage, all throughout this passage, we find this interplay between the words him and us. Looking down at the passage, would you just follow along? We see, we see he bore our griefs. Now, it's going to be helpful if I put it this way. Our griefs he bore. Our sorrows he carried. Our transgressions he was pierced for. Our iniquities he was crushed. Our peace he was punished. Our healing his wounds. You are written in here in this passage of, of the scriptures. Right here is you. You're part of the us. And there is one here who is this personal pronoun, him, that is Jesus Christ. So this passage has to do with you and the Lord Jesus Christ has everything to do with you and the Lord Jesus Christ. So will you listen this morning? What kind of griefs did he bear? What kind of griefs did Jesus bear? The metaphors that we are reading here remind us back at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Would you turn with me then to the first chapter of the book of Isaiah? As in all chapters, this book, all books, this book begins with an address. It begins with the prologue, the, the, the problem here. With Israel, Israel had long turned away from God and God sent to Israel a, a wonderful and, and obedient prophet named Isaiah. God commissioned Isaiah to speak God's words to the people. That is, Isaiah would be a channel. He would be a vessel, a representative of God before the people. Now, the people had stopped worshiping God in truth. 
Now, there was a temple and there was priests and there was a lot of activity, but there was no truth. They had turned their heart away from God. They were synchronizing the worship of idols and icons along with the worship of the true God. That it had begun to trust in their religion and their routines and their ceremonies to establish them in righteousness with God. So, so long they had departed from God that God had to come to them by means of prophets. And this is one of them. And in Isaiah chapter 1, God says to Israel how they look in verses 5 and 6. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. This is using sort of an anthropomorphism of the Israel. Your whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Verse 6. From the sole of your foot, even to the head, there is no soundness, there is no health in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. As God looks upon the devastating effects of sin upon Israel, He sees them, He typifies them in this picture, you are a very sick person. Your wounds and your sores are exposed and there is no relief. And by the way, when we are without Jesus Christ, this is our picture. We are born about with griefs. And God says to Israel, this is how you look. If, if what you looked like on the inside was outside, this is how you look. From head to toe, your, your body bears out wounds and sores and you're sick and sick unto death. So in Isaiah 53, after 39 chapters of God pleading with Israel to turn to Him, 27 chapters, the remaining 27 chapters, you could say that maybe the second almost half of Isaiah, God brings hope and says, you are sick, but I will heal you. And in Isaiah 53, 4-6 here, really is the pinnacle passage of God addressing the need of the people who have turned their, their hearts away from God in Isaiah chapter 1. And God says to them, surely, He will bear your griefs. And as He describes Jesus in verses 4-6, through six, it reminds us of how He described the people without God in Isaiah chapter 1. They are the people with wounds. Jesus shouldn't have wounds, but He does. God shouldn't have wounds, but He does. Why? And we're going to find out. Surely, He has borne our griefs. And so the metaphor takes us back to that. As a result of its rebellion, Israel, the nation, was desperately ill. They were a mass of open sores and unbandaged wounds. What was to be done? How would wounds of the heart be healed? How would a wound between you and God ever be healed? Not more hypocritical worship. No, not, not that. What is needed is just and righteous living. God tells them later on in chapter 1 that they would live rightly. But can living rightly now atone for, pay for, wash away the things that have been done in the past? It certainly couldn't. Living rightly now would never heal wounds that had been open for so long and it, living rightly now would never destroy the infection that was so deeply invading the heart. And no writing new words, no coming up with new rules, new, new prayers, new rituals could ever atone for the wrongness 
the way in which they have been living in, in rebellion against God. And by the way, the same is true with us. There's no new rule. There's no new religion. There's no new ritual. There's no new prayer that you can pray that will take care of the wounds that have, that have been afflicting you and causing you grief. Someone must take the disease. Someone must give back the health. Someone must bear the blows and someone must give back the riches and the wealth, the original sense of well-being. So what kind of griefs does, does this one bear in Isaiah 53, 4? What kind of griefs and sorrows are there? Ultimately, we know that every single grief and sorrow in this fallen world, especially as we see them in the physical sense, are born out because of the curse of sin. Because as a race of mankind, we have turned our backs against God. So all of us fall prey to the curse of sin. Certainly that would be part of the griefs. But all of us would also agree that there is a deeper anguish of our souls than that is than merely just wounds of the flesh. But there is a grieving of our souls that must be dealt with. There is a conscience that's troubled. There's a heart that aches. There's a soul that is in an anxiety these too are the griefs that this one will bear. And so he bore our griefs. Grief is a, is a word associated with sin, sinfulness. It includes more than just the aches and sorrows of our bodies. It contains the root of all of our heart. It contains the root of heartache, and that is the curse of sin itself. It envelops both the extent of the suffering of sin upon our physical world and it includes the extreme depths of our own depravity, our own darkness, the dark and evil destructive ways of our thoughts, words, and actions. Grief is the result of sin, but it is also the experience of sin itself. Wherever there is sin, there is grief. And Christ bore that grief. All of it. And the world, but the word for carry or bore is far more than, than far more loving than we would at least first see it. The word for bore our griefs is far more loving than we would first even believe upon it. Jesus didn't just carry our griefs like Atlas, as we had referenced last Sunday, would carry the globe, the world on his shoulders in a burdensome uh, way. Jesus carried our griefs away from us. Away. This perhaps would be a one word paraphrase of the gospel is away. And that's what this word means. He bore our griefs away. It means not just to carry a heavy load, but to carry the load away from us. And surely he has carried our griefs away from us. Surely he has taken our sins upon his back and carried them away no longer to be upon us. But he carried our sorrows. And that's what he did with our sorrows too. Our griefs might be more outwardly evident, but like a means of disease or sores, but our sorrows are inward. And it's likely that you have sorrows here today, if you do not know Jesus Christ, that are so deep and so dark, you have actually never shared them with anyone. And your heart aches in the lostness and hopelessness and despair. And you know that God has the ability to go into the very depths of your sorrows and to carry those sorrows 
away. Our sorrows are inward. And so both our outward agonies and the inward effects of sin, the discouragement, the anxiety, the regrets. The sorrows is more of the emotional side of our loss. Both grief and sorrows are metaphors for sin. Sin ultimately is just the loss of something. It's the loss of peace, the loss of love, the loss of sweet fellowship with God. In Psalm 32.10, David describes the one who does not know God and he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And Christ came to carry all our sorrows. The Jewish nation at this time was full of sorrow. It was a time where there was no joy, there was no peace. And in the first part of Isaiah, God describes the brokenness and the grief and the sorrow of the nation who had turned their back on the Lord. Theirs were the sorrows of unbelief. And there's no more sorry person in this world. And there's no more sorrowful person in this world than the one who remains in unbelief towards Jesus Christ. Theirs were the sorrows of injustice. Theirs were the sorrows of idolatry. Theirs were the sorrows of pain and anguish from disease and death. And all these sorrows, Isaiah says, will be carried in time to come by the Messiah. Don't you want someone who can carry your sorrows? Don't you want someone who can bear under your grief? Don't you want someone who can not just identify, but can carry sorrows that you bear that you don't even believe you deserve to bear? He carries them all. He bore our sins, meaning He carried them away, but He carried our sorrows. And this isn't the same word as born. Born would mean to carry away. But this is a different word. This is a word that's usually connected with servanthood. And it evokes the image of a servant who has been commissioned to bear under a heavy load And this speaks to the Messiah who suffers like a servant of God under the heavy weight and the task of delivering His people from the load of sin upon them. This passage foretells of the servant Messiah, the servant Savior, who will carry the load so that His people will not. That's why He carries the load. He carries the sorrows so that you don't have to. He bore our griefs and He took them far away from us and He carried our sorrows, laying them on His back so that they would not be ours. Secondly, the second truth I want you to see is the rendering of judgment upon Christ. The rendering of judgment upon Christ. Notice in verse number, and back in Isaiah 53, The second part in verse 4, yet we esteemed Him. We esteemed Him to be rightly, righteously, deservingly afflicted by God. Meanwhile, we had an opinion about all this. As Jesus was being crushed, as the stripes were being laid upon His back, as the crown of thorns was was embedded upon His head. As the Gospel writers record in prolific fashion, they would rip His beard 
and nail his hands and his feet to a cross. Speaking of Israel, when they would look upon the suffering servant Jesus, when the Israel would crucify Jesus, they would have an opinion about him in that day. They would judge that Jesus was worthy to die at the hands of God. This was Israel's position before Jesus when he stood on the cross. He deserves to die at the hands of God. This was Israel's opinion. And this is what, what Isaiah is saying. We, Israel, esteemed him to be deservedly stricken and smitten by God. When we looked upon him, we believed that he deserved to die on the cross. Israel. And this was the position of Israel when Jesus was crucified, wasn't it? And this is the unbelieving Jewish opinion about Christ to this day. Today, the Jewish nation as a whole believe this about Christ, that he deserves to die because he was a blasphemer and ultimately he got what he deserved. And we might be sitting here today and we might think, but we don't have such an estimation. We did not esteem him to be deserved. If we had been there, we would have never allowed a human being to endure such agony. We would never have allowed such a barbaric execution of a good man to happen. We would have stood in the way. We would have rallied. We would have found some way for Jesus not to die. And so the Jewish thought of a suffering Messiah that he was deserving of this was very controversial to us. And we might think that we don't have that we have a better angle on this, that we would have been more sympathetic than the Jew who stood there before the cross. We might think, why didn't they just recognize him as the great deliverer that was prophesied? And we might even be tempted to think that we would have never esteemed him to be deserving of so harsh a judgment, not only of the Roman soldiers, but of the Jewish spiritual leaders and of God himself. But we couldn't be more wrong. At the root of the rejection by the Jews is their damning unbelief and an unbelief deeply rooted in self-righteousness. Why did they hate Jesus? Because they didn't need Him. If you don't believe that you need a Messiah, if you don't believe that you need to be forgiven, then you must think that Christ was such a fool and such a blasphemous and pompous prophet because of His audacious claims He does deserve to die if you're good enough. In every effect, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, the fact that we need to be delivered from the punishment for our sins by someone other than ourselves is just so deeply offensive to us. Listen, every scrap of human dignity within us says that we don't need help and we don't need God to make right what is wrong within us. We can just cross off the list of things we have done wrong by overwriting them with things that we have done that are right. We can replace our wrongs with our rights as if they never happened. And sadly, we become so self-deceived that the thought of having someone go through what Christ went through seems like an exaggeration for how bad we are. We are not that bad that someone would need to be crucified to be punished for our sins. When we esteem the scourgings and stripes and piercings and the wounds of Christ, 
we shudder to think that our sins would be so bad that that punishment would be fitting. And then when we add in our understanding that God was involved in the punishment and that while men were killing Christ, God was pouring out His fury upon Him as well and using men to do the same, we doubly think, we double down to think that our sin is not so grotesque as deserving such an extreme judgment. Our sin isn't so bad that someone would need to die for it. And so we esteem Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, you see? Like Israel. We're not that bad. But oh friend, it must be that either He deserved it, we think, or that He is a weak victim to be pitied. It couldn't be we think, it couldn't be that that was what was required for my sin to be removed from me. It couldn't be that someone would have to die in such a way to pay the ransom for my judgment. It couldn't be that my sin was so bad that God would have to die for me. But that's how bad it is. It's so bad that when you die, You can't pay for your sins. It's so bad. Our sins are such an offense before a holy God that God had to die for our sins to make justice ratified. And so, it's far easier for us to esteem Jesus as deserving the striking from God than it it is for us to feel that we are deserving of the judgment. We're not that bad. And so we see His scourging. We esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. The word stricken, smitten and afflicted evokes images of someone actually exerting the fullness of their force to inflict pain, distress, suffering and affliction. It is the full intent to harm someone, even violently, even involving intense labor and effort to do so. It's a violent action, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, this word, uh, these words are used to describe the final plague uh, that God evoked upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 11, that tenth plague. Do you remember it? The death of the firstborn. These words are used as God would inflict punishment upon Egypt for not releasing His people at His command. And it would be the death of the firstborn. God would smite. He would strike. He would afflict Egypt, Pharaoh, and the Egyptians. And the same word then is reserved for Isaiah 53 for what God would do to His Son. You see, notice who strikes the Messiah. When we read the Gospels, we see that the Roman soldiers are doing this. But in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, we notice that God says, He's the one who is striking His Son. We esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's God. Our griefs, 
he bore, our sorrows he carried. And even though we thought we weren't that bad and somehow he must deserve this punishment, it's true. God struck him. Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7, God gives his mind about what would go through the Messiah's mind and heart as he gives himself willingly for you and I on the cross. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Our transgressions he was wounded for. Transgressions is a word of verse number 5 of Isaiah 53. Transgressions is not uncalculated mistakes. It's not oopses. The word literally means willful rebellion. Revolt against authority. It's the breaking of relationship between two people and the guilt that results from it. Isaiah 53, 8 will say, that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. God drew a line in the sand, and we dared to cross it. That's called transgression. We crossed it, when, and then once we crossed it, we danced and we mocked and we scoffed. And our transgression against God couldn't have been more great, for we not only defiantly revolted against God, but we arrogantly persisted in acts of rebellion on, rebellion on the other side of the line against God. Meanwhile, while we were standing on the other line that we had crossed, we consoled ourselves into thinking that we were okay, that we're alright on that side of the line. We're not rebels. It's just He was too overbearing. He's too demanding. He's too holy. Who could ever live up to His standards? He's unreasonable. He's irrational. Therefore, I have every right to cross the line that He says not to cross. And the Bible uses the word transgression for this type of thinking. And here it says that Christ was pierced not for His own transgressions, but for you who crossed the line. And this is a devastating wound that he was pierced. It's certainly a very personal experience, which many of us have endured even recently with shots and people piercing us with needles. It's a very traumatic thing, isn't it, to be pierced? Something invading your body? Your personal space? Something causing discomfort? There's nothing more personal than a foreign object invo in invading your body and then inflicting excruciating pain. But instead of piercing us for our revolting, God pierced His Son. He inflicted upon His Son a very deeply personal form of judgment that was meant for us. He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed 
for our iniquities. He was beat down. He was bruised. He was oppressed. We see this in the imagery of mortar, which is made from the fine dust of something that is crushed and broken into pieces. Jesus' crushing was as a result of our iniquities. Here's a different word for our sins than we have seen before. The word iniquities is a word of indictment. This word corners us. If you say, I'm not that bad a person, I'm really not on the other side of the line. I mean, I know I don't have everything all together, but I wouldn't classify myself as a rebel. Well, the word iniquities actually corners us. God knows what kind of a lawyer and attorney we are for ourselves. That we can find every reason and every loophole in order to get ourselves out of being unrighteous and being transgressors. But oh, the word iniquities corners us. We can't get away from this word and not a single person in this world can get away from this word iniquities. Because it's a word that means twisted. It is the idea that something is bent like a pretzel. And it's exactly what goes on in our hearts when we try to justify ourselves and our actions. It carries the weight of distortion and perversion. It is when we take what we know to be right and mischievously bend it in such a way to break God's expectations, meanwhile soothing our consciousness that it's entirely right. It's a word that leaves us just completely undone. Because we know the conspiracy, we know the lawyer of our hearts and the psychology of our minds. We don't think we are that bad and so we continue all day long to counsel ourselves that we're not bad, we're not bad at all. We're not that bad that we need someone to die for us. And certainly God doesn't need to think of Himself as someone who needs to take my place. And so we argue it out. We hope that we can counsel ourselves into peace by repeating some of the same things and yet we're haunted so deeply when we close our eyes with guilt that dogs us. And iniquity is that word that just strips us of all argumentation. He was crushed for those arguments of self-justification. He was crushed for that lawyer inside of you that keeps telling you that you're okay when you're really not. He was crushed for your unbelief. He was crushed for your antagonism. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by the way, our iniquities are just awful. The piercings were traumatic, but the crushing was pulverizing. And so Christ was crushed. There was no life left. There was nothing left in Him. Every breath of life pressed out of Him in loving, substitutionary sacrifice for transgressors, for manipulators, for rebels, for scoffers, for sinners like you and I. Vicarious atonement, substitutionary Sacrifice. Thirdly, the third truth we see in this, that there, there is a receiving of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Verse number five says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The consequences of our offense before God meant that there needed to be a judgment, there needed to be a punishment. 
But God imposed upon his son what we had seen before, the piercing, the crushing, the wounding, the stripes, the scourgings. He imposed it upon his son, the consequences that we deserved, he imposed upon Jesus Christ. And secondly, instead of giving us the consequences, God imputed to us, he reckoned to us, he credited to us, Peace. God gave us the covenant of peace. He offered it to us. God imputed to us peace that we didn't deserve. You see, God gave Jesus consequences that He didn't deserve. But God gives us peace that we don't deserve. It's an incredible exchange. God imputes to us a peace that we didn't deserve because of His obedience. He gets consequences because of our disobedience. We get peace because of His obedience. You see? Nothing of ourselves. Those who will not believe upon Christ as their sin bearer just simply cannot enjoy the covenant of peace. Peace cannot be enjoyed by the wicked. Peace is not lost. I'm sorry, peace is lost in disobedience. You see, Jesus was not punished for his own sins. He had none. And we can inspect his life and we can put him underneath a microscope and look at him in magnifying glass. and We will find a sinless, spotless lamb. You see, Jesus was sinless. He didn't die for his own sin. But instead, he offered himself to be punished for our sins so that we could have peace. And with his wounds... With his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. This is the word that we had seen used before. It's the word for scourging. When God looked upon Israel as in the opening, as we had said in Isaiah 1, he saw people who were living in soreness, wounded, and they were bearing out injuries both inwardly and outwardly. God saw people who looked like they had been scourged, yet He had not scourged them. Did you notice that? In Isaiah 1, when He looked down upon the people and He saw a sick people from head to toe and open sores and wounds, do you know that God had done none of that to them? That He had not inflicted any of that punishment upon them. If you're here today without Jesus Christ and you lack peace, and your life is full of wounds and sores. None of that is what God has done to you. But do you know where all that comes from? They have done it to themselves by living life without them, without Him. Sin scourges. Sin scourges. It's painful. It's awful. Don't be mistaken. If Christ isn't your Savior, you're not well. And you are to be pitied. You're living with open wounds and deep, deep afflictions and sores that nobody in this room can heal. But only Christ can. Because the wounds of Christ heal. 
He's the only one who can restore you by forgiveness. Because by His wounds, we are healed. Why will you continue in pain? Why do you suffer so deeply? Isaiah says by the word of God that we who are afflicted so deeply need only to entrust ourselves to Jesus who will bear out the consequences of our sins so that we don't have to. You see, Jesus stepped forward to bear your punishment. It seems so unlikely that anyone would take upon themselves such a burden. And it's hard to believe that anyone would be so loving as someone who would offer to be punished for our disobedience and rebellion, especially when we know how dark and evil we have been. When we look at such deep brokenness in our life, we might come to believe that we are irreparable, that these wounds have been with us so long, and they're so deep and they're so personal. Who could know them? Who could know my grief? Who could know my sorrow? Who could know the extent of my transgressions? Who could know the darkness of my inward thinking of iniquities? And offer to pay for them. Well, the first word in this passage is the word we find in our New Testament. It's the word surely. We find its synonym in the New Testament as the word amen. And God, when he preaches the gospel to you and I, the gospel of hope and peace through Jesus Christ, he can't wait to say amen, so he puts it at the beginning. He says, this is true. And the second word he puts in this passage is not you. It's him. Surely he. Who could look upon you, who you feel so irreparable, so hopeless and lost? What looks to be an impossible thing what looks to be something without cure has been made available by Jesus Christ when he offered himself to be your substitute before God. Augustus Toplady wrote the first verse and consequent verses of a timeless hymn for the church called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Listen to the words that he writes about the vicarious atonement, the surely he of Isaiah 53. Rock of ages cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. The beating and killing of Christ by his Father was not one of a raging tyrant who is demanding violence on someone who needs to satisfy his wrath. God wasn't pacing heaven as some angry monster just waiting to pour out fury on someone. Instead, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is by a God who wants to have a relationship with his people, but he cannot because it's prevented until his perfect justice is satisfied and his people are at peace with him. Through Jesus Christ, God has made a way to satisfy his love and meet his justice. And when God looked upon you and I with our open sores and wounds, deserving of scourgings and smiting, God said nothing would stand in his way to make a payment for our sin. And he himself would become the perfect sacrifice. You see, we need a Savior not just for what we do, but we are so foul. We need a Savior for who we are. We are like sheep, verse number 6, who have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And we need a shepherd to bring us back. In Romans 8.36, the Apostle Paul says that God would be just and He would be the justifier. That is, that God would be the judge and God would handle the verdicts too. God would be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And God is doing this wonderful work today. God invites you to be the one who has finally become justified in His sight. Notice the end of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And here the passage breaks open to help us see that this wasn't just a Messiah for the Jews who had crucified him, and yet he would still offer salvation to them. But this would be a Messiah for many and He would become my Messiah and He would become our Messiah and He would become the Deliverer and the Savior for all who would look upon Him. Though He was in anguish, He satisfied the righteous law of God so that nothing was left for me to do to receive whole salvation. This forgiving grace is available for all who will look to Christ as their perfect substitute. He is punished for your sin and you are given his righteousness. And to prove that God will accept you, how will I know that God will accept me? To prove that God will accept you after bearing our sins, after bearing our sorrows and our griefs, after being pierced for our transgressions and being crushed for our iniquities, Jesus would be buried in the grave. And when He was buried in that tomb, God raised Him up on the third day in power 
to show us that Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice was exactly what was needed to pay the price for our sin, yours and mine and all who will call upon Him. Only those who will place their belief upon the saving work of Jesus Christ will have peace with God. Leaving their sin upon Christ, they turn away from their wicked ways and they follow Him. Now, verse number 12 in Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, today, if you're hearing this word with all truth and authority from the word of God, Jesus today is speaking to you by the means of this word and saying, will you have peace through the finished work of Jesus Christ? Let's pray.